has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is the word of the Lord. Darren, you can come up and we'll pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. I'm thankful that even in difficult to understand and challenging passages that your spirit will be at work in us. I pray that that be the case today. God, help us to see your goodness and your glory in this passage and to pursue Jesus. God, thank you for Darren and for his leadership of this body and for his preparation. I just pray that you would give him strength and encourage him as he leads us through this passage. God, thank you for your goodness and for your love. Be with us and have us to have open hearts um, that your word may have its intended effect today. We ask by your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Okay, we can do much better than that. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Good, lovely. Uh, Thank you all for praying for me uh, this week as I've been wrestling with some some things. But I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be preaching God's word again. But please keep your Bibles open. Uh, As Brandon was saying, this passage is uh, maybe you could say interesting. But I want to start off with a question, and I don't want you to be weirded out by the question, but I want you to entertain it with me just for a moment. And the question is this, where does the devil prefer to live? That's the question. The drug-infested slums or the corporate office next door to the wolves on Wall Street? The war zone-like ghettos, or in Silicon Valley with the rich tech giants and their gated communities? Well, how you answer that question reveals a lot about what you believe and how you think. The truth, though, is much less intuitive. I want to argue or pose the question in return, uh, you know, what if Satan prefers our kinds of neighborhoods, our kinds of demographics. Not too religious, we're vaguely spiritual, but we're certainly not committed to Jesus and Christianity. At best, we're neutral towards Christianity, maybe even somewhat open-minded. Of course, we can be convinced if we have enough evidence and if God shows up in some sort of miraculous way. Of course, Jesus' hearers might have answered this question differently. His audience probably had some sort of theology that said demons maybe live out in the wilderness, or more likely, demons live among the Gentiles, non-Jews. But Jesus says, no, no. (laughs) Demons actually prefer to live and take residence in hearts and minds of moralists. 
those who are trying to clean house and refurbish their apartments without changing tenants. And as weird as this passage might look, it's actually far less complicated and far more profound than what you might think. So let's take a few minutes to work through the context. We're in Matthew chapter 12. And thus far, Jesus has been interacting with the Pharisees quite a bit. And at this point, the Pharisees, they really turn a corner in terms of how they deal with Jesus. They move from curious to aggressive. They are now actively seeking a way to get rid of Jesus or even get him killed. We see this in Matthew 12, verse 14. But Jesus continues his ministry in spite of all of that. Later on in verses 22 through 24, Jesus ends up healing a man who was actually possessed by a demon. And so Jesus' kingdom, it comes with power and glory. And this man who was once, once blind and mute, he can now see and talk. It's incredible. And any reasonable person would have found that moment as an occasion for rejoicing and praising God and believing in Christ. But not the Pharisees, right? They can't believe it because they won't believe it. They end up saying the only way Jesus can do this miracle is because Satan himself was actually working through him, which is a wild idea, but they stick to it nonetheless. And Jesus says that this is utter nonsense He easily dismantles their argument, and while doing so, he gives a little parable, an illustration, which I think serves as the backdrop to our text today. So Jesus says, look, Satan, he's he's like a strong man. He's like the owner of this house with tons of valuable goods. However, I, Jesus, I'm stronger than Satan, and I can tie up the strong man and take his goods back for myself. In other words... Jesus breaks into this evil kingdom, this house. He destroys the power of Satan. And when the gospel is proclaimed, he takes the goods, those under the influence of Satan, for himself. But here's the problem. The Pharisees, at best, they're caught in the middle. They're uncertain. They're uncommitted, if not downright angry and hating Jesus. They've seen incredible miracles that prove the power and righteousness of Christ's kingdom, but they don't believe. And so the question that comes up is this. What do we make of people like this? What's the outcome of people who witness and experience the gospel and the power of the kingdom, but don't change their hearts? And that's What I want to answer this morning, that's the main point of this text this morning. Jesus warns the people that a half-hearted repentance and neutrality towards the kingdom makes you more susceptible to evil spiritual influence. And the reason why we need this passage this morning, church, is because we live in an age of deconstruction. We live in an age of religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, where people claim no religious affiliation, yet we dabble in the occult, in New Age spirituality. We live in an age of apostasy, where people join the church, and despite having so much light and so much proximity to the gospel, they walk away and they no longer believe. You and I know people like this. 
We need this passage because even us as believers, we are prone to having the same attitude as these Pharisees. And so my main point this morning is simple. If the gospel does not dwell in your heart, something else will. Something else will. And so there are three, three things I really want to show you this morning from this text. Number one, your heart is like a home, so guard it. Number two, your heart needs more than renovation. Beware. Number three, your heart needs a new resident. Believe and welcome him. Number one, your heart is like a home. Look at the text with me. This is in verses 43 through 44. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my home, my house from which I came. Your heart is like a home, so guard it. Now, I know that sounds cute, sounds like a Hallmark gift card kind of thing, but it's profound, okay? What's going on here? Well, the commentaries are really helpful in unpacking this. And one of the commentaries I read points out that these verses are more of, of a parable rather than a sort of objective psychiatric observation. If, if you want to learn more about uh, what the Bible teaches about demons, there was a sermon that Bobby preached uh, probably a few months ago, but I, I encourage you to listen to that. But this text, Jesus, he's, he's not... He's not denying the reality of demon possession in these verses. I mean, I think that's obvious from the text, but at the same time, he's not primarily concerned with giving this sort of robust theology of of demon possession, okay? He's really speaking generally, okay? He's making a point about the kinds of people who are susceptible to evil spiritual influence. That's really what he's getting at here, okay? But notice verse 43, It says, the unclean spirit goes out of a person and seeks somewhere to rest, but when it finds none, it returns to its house. So, I argue that it's here that the the heart of a person, or you could even say the person's life, is compared to a home. And this is profound because while our culture talks a lot about the heart, it almost never does so comprehensively enough. I think our culture makes two fundamental errors when we think about the heart, one of which is that we think of the heart as simply being our emotions. The heart does involve the emotions, but it's much, much more than that. As Aaron preached about a few weeks ago, the heart is really the center of our being. It involves who we are, what we want, how we feel, all of it. And the second error that our culture makes is this. We tend to think that the heart is a blank slate, what the sociologists call a tabula rasa. This is where we think the heart is fundamentally good or at worst, neutral. But one of the images that scripture gives of the heart is that of a home. And it's a home with lots of stuff inside. And people are trying to get in from the outside. Look with me at Genesis 4. You'll see this dynamic at play. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, he was a worker of the ground. 
And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the what? The door, right? This is not a literal door. This is speaking of his heart, isn't it? Its desire is contrary to you, but you must overrule it. You see, our hearts were made for worship and to be captivated by something other than ourselves, namely God. And the scripture is one big story about a war going on within the human heart. Someone is vying for it, seeking to capture it and exert influence on the world through us, through our heart. And so the point of this passage is not necessarily that everyone who is not a Christian is demon-possessed by Satan or something like that, but rather every believer is incredibly susceptible to Satan's influences and schemes, and so we must guard our heart. Ephesians 2 makes this point as well. It says that you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, okay, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. Okay? So yes, we, even us Christians, we need to guard our hearts. Okay? Sin is crouching at the door, and do you believe that? Or do you let your heart be open, run wild, welcoming all kinds of influences? Be careful. Be careful. But that's not all. The second thing you need to know this morning is that your heart needs more than renovation. So beware. Look with me at verses 44 through 45. Then it says, this is the unclean spirit, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits. Seven, that number indicates perfection, ironically enough. But it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. Now, it's this section that I think is the most scandalous. Because listen how Jesus, listen to how he describes what the unclean spirit does. It temporarily leaves the house looking for rest, right? And when it can't find rest, it goes back to the same house, but notices the house has been cleaned up. And notice that the unclean spirit is totally fine with the clean house. Totally fine. In fact, the cleaner the home, the more likely the the unclean spirit is to invite others See, the unclean spirits, they don't care how ordered and how neat your heart is. The real question is this. Who's home? Who lives there? The unclean spirit says, oh, I'm totally fine here. In fact, I can invite others here because nothing has really changed. Yes, they've cleaned up the house and the fine china. It's been put in order, but it's still the same tenant. 
That's all that matters to us. In fact, all this cleaning, it just gives me more room to invite my friends. What could Jesus mean? Well, keep in mind who Jesus is primarily addressing here. He is not talking to the person who is living in open sin. He is not talking to the tax collector, the drug dealer, or even the person who's literally demon-possessed just looking for relief from Christ. Jesus is describing the Pharisees. He's describing the religious leaders. He's describing the people who other people wanted to be like because of their righteousness. He's describing those who were actively seeking righteousness and to live out God's kingdom. The Pharisees realized they were sinners, but they were trusting in their own righteousness and law-keeping to keep them from relief, to give them relief from that sin, rather. And that's the problem. The Pharisees didn't want Jesus. You see, movies and books... They have you think, you know, look, man, the person who's really prone to Satan's influence and demon possession, it's the person who's living out open sin, rebellion, who hates God, who's doing drugs, who's doing weird, crazy things. Uh, Yeah, maybe there's some truth to that. But more often than not, the person who's most susceptible to these things It's the person who realizes they need to change, but instead of going to Christ, they pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They become moralistic. They become vaguely spiritual. They may even start going to church, but the gospel doesn't reside in their heart. And Satan is such an effective liar that most people wouldn't even notice the drift because on the outside, it just looks so harmless. It looks so great. In fact, it looks like they're turning things around for the better. They're not trying to cuss anymore. They're involved in the community. They're going to church. They're really doing their best, you know. It's not the person who's throwing up with their head spinning around in circles, you know, like the Exorcist movie. It's much more subtle than that. You see, when Jesus describes the unclean spirit going back to the home that's been cleaned up, he's describing everyone who finds themselves neutral about Christ, or even worse, everyone who feels that they can be right with God by keeping the rules, legalism, tradition, or anything that bypasses faith in Christ. Cars, we need to be careful because our hearts desperately need more than renovation. Merely renovating the heart will leave you worse off than before because if the gospel does not take root and dwell in your heart, something else will. And I want to be careful here to define my words lest we be confused because uh, when I talk about moralism and legalism and all this stuff, I don't want to assume that people automatically know what I mean. But when I talk of moralism, I'm talking about our modern day sort of secular version of what the Bible calls works righteousness. Moralism is do the right things, act the right way, and you will be right with God or all of life will go well. That's what I mean by moralism. In one of his lectures, Dan Doriani says there are four kinds of legalism or works righteousness. And I'm paraphrasing here, and you'll see this on on the screen, but... 
There's four kinds I want you to be aware of. There's the first kind that says, I obey to be saved. There's a second kind that says, I obey the rules to stay saved. There's a third kind that says, I love the rules so much that I'm going to make more rules so I don't break those rules. And then there's a fourth kind that says, I obey, here it is, because I, I owe God. Now, we just sung a hymn that says, all to him I owe. Jesus paid it. So why, is, why am I saying that? And here's why. Because when you give to God, it is a sacrifice. It is an offer of worship. It is not a business exchange. And so let me submit to you that none of these approaches are biblical. Because Christianity says, I obey because I love God. I have been loved by God, and I want to love my neighbor as myself. Now, there's a sense in which I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> because, you know, so many of us, we say, yeah, I get it. You know, ABCs of the gospel, Christianity. I'm not saved by the stuff that I do. But at the same time, I realize that so few of us actually live as if this were true. I have to preach this way because a few hours from now, you know what? You're going to go home. You're going to scroll through your phone. You're going to look at the TV or whatever. People still watch TV. And you're going to have all of these messages bombarding you that saying the exact opposite of what the text says. A few days from now, you're going to be listening to your coworkers at work. And you're going to be thinking, man, I am so glad I'm not like them. Or maybe a few hours from now, a few minutes from now, you're going to be having an argument with your spouse. And if you win the argument, you're going to say, yeah, I was right, suck it. Or if you lose the argument, you're going to say, man, I really am a terrible person. And what do all these responses have in common? They, they basically say, hey, your worth, your righteousness, your good standing, yeah, it's all based on what you do. It's all based on how well you do. But our good deeds, apart from faith in Christ, can't do anything to help us. Hear Isaiah 64 on this. Verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and, our, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Now, our ESV is actually tame here when it translates this phrase polluted garment. Because in the Hebrew, it is actually menstrual cloth. Now, that weren't shocking enough. Also notice that it doesn't say our deeds are like a menstrual cloth. It says our righteous deeds. Righteous deeds. So, the Bible is saying that our good deeds before God are like dirty tampons. Okay. Pause. I know that's shocking, but I'm not going to apologize for what the Holy Spirit has inspired Isaiah to say. I'm not, because you don't believe it. It's been said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him you have plans. Well, if you want to make God sick, tell him you have good deeds. And Paul picks up the same point in Philippians 3. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Excuse me. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
Now, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Okay, we'll pause there. Brief aside. Paul was a Pharisee. Okay, some of us are familiar with this. But think about this again, because Paul would have been thinking about this, this tradition passed down in the gospel, right? Paul was literally the exact kind of person that Jesus warned about. Fascinating. But Paul goes on. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Once again, this is another area where our translation waters down what's behind it. Okay? Paul here, he's using some of the strongest language to describe his righteousness. He's actually using the word dung. Okay? Now, I'm at home with my daughters quite a bit. I have two of them. One of them is one. One of them is six. I've changed a lot of diapers. And not once have I ever changed a diaper and said, wow, that's really neat. I think I'll keep this for a while. <laughs> right? Because what we do with dung is we get rid of it. Right? It's not something we hold on to. Okay? Back to the text. Verse 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So, before I move on, are you aware of this, church? Those of you who are new to Christianity, are you aware of this? Those of you who don't believe, are you aware of these truths? Merely renovating the heart, it, it's, it's going to just leave you worse off. If the gospel doesn't take root and dwell in your heart, something else will. So, here's what we've seen thus far. Number one, your heart is like a home. Guard it. Two, your heart needs more than renovation. Beware. Last, number three. Your heart needs a new resident. Believe and welcome him. Let's look one more time at our passage here, verse 45. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So, also will it be with this evil generation. And so this, this unclean spirit, right, it goes out of a person and then it returns. It goes out of the person and returns when the gospel is proclaimed but not believed. That's the problem, right? The unclean spirit goes out of the person and returns when the person responds to the gospel but with apathy and willful unbelief. And Jesus is saying, no amount of moralism can replace true faith. As I said before, it's just going to leave you worse off. So what exactly does a person need? How do we change this situation, right? A renovated heart is no good. An empty heart, nope, not going to work. 
And, by the way, we are certainly in no condition to own our own hearts, despite what our culture might tell us. We need transformation. We need transformation. Our heart needs a new resident. Our hearts need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that proceeds from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, that strong man mentioned earlier in chapter 12. We need him, the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that can provide something more than just renovation. He can provide transformation. Now, (laughs) I know all this talk about good deeds uh, being worthless. That can kind of offend our modern sensibilities because we like a good fixer-upper, don't we? We like a good renovation story. Uh, My wife likes watching those TV shows where people buy some house that's you know, like millions of dollars, but it's really only worth like one-fourth of that, and people fix it up, and it's like, oh, yeah, great, you celebrate, and all this stuff. We love these kinds of stories, right? Fix it, do it yourself. But we need transformation. That's always been people's deepest needs ever since the beginning, right? We must always remember that for every story in the Bible where sinners are judged for terrible deeds, there's a story of people being judged for trying to work their way up to heaven with their good deeds, that is. In other words, for every Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a Tower of Babel, isn't there? And though we don't see demon possession or talk of Satan nearly as much in the Old Testament, he's there nevertheless. Satan is at work whenever Israel engages with the false gods of the surrounding nations, and Satan is at work whenever people fall prey to idolatry. And if there's one thing that's clear from the Old Testament, is that the people couldn't bind the strong man on their own strength. The people could not purge evil from their midst on their own. The people of God then, and even today, are really good at cleaning house, not so much with changing tenants. Neither the best king nor the best judge could bind the strong man. The righteousness and the moral efforts were never enough. I won't read it, but this is why in Deuteronomy 9, when God talks to the Israelites before they enter the promised land, he says, look, hey guys, you're about to go into the promised land, Now, look, when you get there, I don't want none of y'all getting all proud, saying you got here because of your righteousness. Actually, you guys are really stubborn and hard-hearted. And it's actually really incredible when you think about it, because, like, who else operates this way? Think about it. Like, Valentine's Day is coming up soon. Imagine I write a note for my lovely wife, and she opens the note, and it reads, Dear Becca, I'm going to be honest, you're actually not that different than other women. In fact, there's really nothing that makes you stand out. Um, Anyways, happy Valentine's Day. Love, Darren. Not, probably would not go particularly well, okay? But here's the thing. There's a sense in which God has said that to us. And God saying this to us is actually a good thing because that means we are free to confess our need. That means we're free to stop renovating our own hearts. That means we are free to give up the keys to our home and to believe in Jesus Christ. 
This means that we are free to love Christ. And when you do that, church, when you repent of your good works, not just your evil deeds, when you repent of your good works and you get off the treadmill of works righteousness and let God be God, something incredible happens. Jesus binds the strong man and he takes home in your heart. He saves you and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And Jesus is such a gracious Savior that the first thing he says to you is not, let's get your house in order. The first thing he says to you is, sit down, take a seat, let's talk. Don't don't worry about the mess, it's fine. I actually prefer to be in the mess. Talk to me, know me. Walk with me. Love me. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus doesn't just die on the cross for our sin. He dies on the cross for our works righteousness. And Colossians 2 tells us how this works. God cancels our debt by nailing our sin to the cross. And then the risen Christ is victorious over all things, including Satan and evil itself, And he stands victorious, risen from the grave, in control, the victor. And we reign with him. We reign with him. And because of what Jesus has done, Satan has no ammunition to use against you anymore. In Christ, we have a sort of double protection, a double victory. On the one hand, there's nothing Satan can say against you that Jesus hasn't already dealt with. And on the other hand, there's no good work that you could perform that Jesus hasn't done a thousand times better. You're free. You're free. Listen to how Romans 8, 9 through 11 puts this. You're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you believe this gospel? Or is Christianity just another religion like all the others? Do you remind yourself of this every day? Are you still amazed by God's grace? Let us never grow cold or neutral to the gospel. The more revelation we, we receive, the greater our responsibility to respond, right? So before I close this morning, I want to offer a brief word of exhortation or application. There's three kinds of people I want to speak to just for a moment. Firstly, to, uh, I want to offer a word to pastors, uh, leaders, and teachers. Okay. First thing I want to say is let the gospel saturate your ministry and your labors. I know that the phrase gospel this or gospel-centered that is so prevalent in our circles that it's almost become a bit of a trope. Um, <laughs> I, I fear, though, that we can take it for granted and even get tired of it at times. But church, have you considered the alternative Do you really want to be rooted in something other than the person and work of Christ? Is there really another fountain that's going to satisfy? Is there another rock that you're going to hide yourself under? I hope not. You know, I'm not going to tell you what phrase you can or can't use, but the gospel should situate 
and orient everything you do as you disciple others. It should saturate your writings, your work, your sermons. Granted, we must preach the gospel in fresh ways. Our goal is to never preach the gospel in innovative and trendy ways. We must preach the gospel in culturally relevant ways, but not theologically compromised ways. We must preach preach the gospel from the whole counsel of God, while at the same time not imposing on the text something that's not actually there. These aren't easy tasks, but these tasks are what's required of us. And the reasons why are clear from this passage, aren't they? Satan loves a gospelless sermon. He loves a gospelless ministry. It leaves them far worse than before. Secondly, a word to parents and their kids. Show them Christ. Parents, show them Christ. Children, kids, youth, commit to Christ. Parents, don't get caught up in trying to renovate your child's heart. It's not going to work. You know, when you're trying to renovate your child's heart, uh, you will grow tired. You will start to see your child more of of a burden rather than a blessing. Trying to renovate your child's heart for 18 years would tire out the best of parents because it's a job we're not qualified for. Instead, show your children the gospel. By no means am I saying that if you're tired because you're a parent, you're doing it wrong. My point is simply this. You will view your child as a burden if his or her heart is simply a house to be organized. Show them Jesus as best as you can, one step at a time. And for the youth in here, don't take the gospel for granted. Certainly don't be neutral to it. Many of you guys have had parents who have told you the gospel year in and year out, and you're still neutral. You still haven't committed to Christ. Why? And lastly, I want to give a word uh, to struggling believers who might be wondering, well, how can the gospel take root more deeply in my heart? This is a hard question because it does depend on your circumstances, but first you need to recognize what's crowding the gospel out of your heart. Is it control? Is it power? Is it comfort? Is it fantasy? Here's the irony. The gospel can grow in your heart as much as you want it to. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. In other words, you can be as godly as you want. (laughs) God is not holding anything back from us. All the means of godliness have been given to every Christian everywhere in the same degree. You can grow as much as you want as a Christian. You simply must work at it. And that's not moralism, not at all, because the source of your growth isn't found in you. And the power to fight sin doesn't come from you either. It all comes from the Holy Spirit. I want to be careful and as gracious as possible when I say this, but there's a lot of Christians who say they want to grow, but don't do much about it. Do you pray? No. Do you read your Bible? Well, I haven't got time. Do you serve the church? Do you use your gifts? Not really. Do you go to church? No. Do you listen to sermons? No. Do you share your faith? Not really. I post stuff on the internet, Bible verses. You see, Christian growth is a divine process, but it's not an automatic process. 
The presence and power of the Holy Spirit will manifest itself more deeply in your life through the ordinary means of grace. And so as I close this morning, uh, I was reminded when I was sermon prepping for this, a story from Aaron and Caitlin. There was, there used to be a payless across from the, what was it, the uh, gas station on Business Loop. It was terrible. I mean, like, nobody really went there. It looked quite a mess. And like... (laughs) Man, that thing was just, the writing was on the wall. It's time for that place to shut down. But it just stayed there for years and years and years, empty, abandoned, you know. And then something crazy happened. Some people moved in, spray-painted the walls green, it looks ugly, and turned it into a vapor maven, which if you don't know what vapor maven is, it's basically a place where you can get a whole bunch of cigarettes and hookah stuff, Okay. Way worse than before. Why? Well, it was vacant. It was empty. It wasn't being used for anything. So, brothers and sisters, your heart is a home. Guard it. Your heart needs more than mere renovation. Beware. Your heart needs a new resident. Give yourself to Christ, the gospel, the Holy Spirit. Because if the gospel doesn't dwell in your heart, then something else will. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that your word encourages us and exhorts us and challenges us. I pray that we would not leave this morning with a small view of you, God, but with a big view. Would we have a greater taste and desire for you, your righteousness that only comes from faith? Forgive us for our good works that we try to do apart from you. Grant us deeper repentance, deeper joy in the gospel. May we never get tired of it. Amen.